Uh, really, you know, when the early days of doing a startup, you kind of be, get distracted with like the company name and the website <laughs> and the business card and uh, things that are not directly about creating a product <laughs> that people want. Right. Okay. They're sort of like ego things. Okay. Hello and welcome to Infinite Machine Learning. This is your host, Pratik Joshi. In each episode of this podcast, we talk to an amazing founder or a VC and dive deep into a specific topic. Today, we have Molham Aref on the show. He is the CEO of Relational AI, an AI co-processor for the data cloud. They have raised $122 million in funding from the likes of Tiger Global, Madrona, Edition, and Menlo Ventures. Moham is a serial entrepreneur and has been doing this for more than three decades. And he has held executive roles at companies like LogicBlocks, Predictix, Infor, Optimi, and more. In this episode, we cover a range of topics, including relational knowledge graphs, knowledge graphs for AI-driven applications, uh, AI coprocessor, what does it mean, where is it used, uh, graph analytics products, the interaction between machine learning workflows and knowledge graph infrastructure, uh, data infrastructure for AI compute, and much more. This is a fantastic episode, very rich in how uh, the products are built and in terms of the knowledge that he has. So I'm really excited for this one. All right, ready for liftoff? And three, and two, and one, let's go! Moham, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Pratik. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a fundamental question. What is a knowledge graph? Okay, so the two words in knowledge graph, knowledge and graph. So let's start with graph. So graph is a way of organizing data so that you connect um, you know, uh, concepts or, or entities or things like a person or a product or, you know, uh, a time period to other uh, entities, concepts, etc., uh, via a relationship, via an edge uh, in a graph. So you're connecting and organizing data in a sort of most uh, atomic form, okay, as opposed to, for example, organizing it in white tables where you're pre-combining a whole bunch of things. So, um, so the graph part is organizing data in the form of a graph. And then the knowledge part is um, taking what you know about that data, the context in which the data uh, operates or the the domain in which the data lives and adding knowledge about that. So you might, uh, for example, have a relationship between a person and their birthday. So Pratik was born in May. I'm just making it up. (laughs) Uh, And then you might be able to add background knowledge in the form of, hey, uh, someone's age is today minus their birthday. So that you can use that background knowledge now to uh, infer your age based on uh, you know what year and, and month uh, you were born in. So, so it's combining those things uh, together in a way that uh, we haven't been doing sort of as a you know an industry in general, where today we organize data in the for the most part in the form of tables or JSON documents, and uh, what we know about a domain is expressed as procedural code in languages like Java or C Sharp or uh, similar languages. That's a, a very nice uh, description. And also, can you just briefly describe where we use it in the real world? So let's say the, the, the layman 
uh, who doesn't know or care about uh, how data is structured, but they, I'm sure they encounter tools and products built on top of this. So can you talk about where we encounter it in our day-to-day lives? Yeah, so the term uh, knowledge graph was popularized uh, by Google uh, when I think in 2012, uh, May uh, 16th, 2012, they came out with a, an article or announcement said uh, about the Google knowledge graph. And so I think the place where we, most of us sort of experience knowledge graph is when we go and search for something. Like you can search for a university or a sports team or a person or a city and um, before the uh, Google Knowledge Graph came into existence, you would just get a list of links that could point you to things that are relevant. Now you get a panel on the right-hand side of your browser, typically top right, that will tell you for the particular person, uh, you know, uh, where they live, wh- where they work, uh, you know, who they uh, are connected to, you know, spouse, children, uh, et cetera. So it's sort of structured information that Google presents to us that it is cr- created by crawling the web and crawling mostly unstructured sources and extracting uh, knowledge, extracting, um, uh, you know, structured data and presenting it to you in a structured way. That's, that's amazing. And it's funny how how frequently and how much we interact with it on a daily basis. And yet, if you conduct a survey, if you ask like a thousand people, most will probably say, hey, this seems like, a, like an esoteric concept in computer science. Sure, sounds cool, but I'm pretty like... Uh, they, they they don't know like every single one of them. You know, they use Google that they've interacted with like a product built on top of this. It's it's, it's fantastic. All right, so let's take a step further, uh, and this is coming to your domain. Is what is a relational knowledge graph? Uh, how does it compare to a knowledge graph? And also, like, what's the additional layer that makes it useful and interesting? Yeah, so a relational knowledge graph is that you use. Um, relational technology, relational mathematics, relational algebra and calculus to both represent uh, represent the connections, the relationships, relationships between uh, nodes versus, say, uh, navigational graph technology where you have pointers that take you from uh, you to your friends on Facebook, for example, or your friends, uh, your connections on LinkedIn. So we're using um, the relation, the idea of a table or a relation as the underlying way of representing relationships. And we're also using um, relational languages to represent the knowledge that you have about a domain. So the knowledge is represented in the form of relational rules, relational uh, algebra, relational queries, and the data is organized in terms of these sort of um, skinny tables, narrow tables that connect one entity to another. That's that's amazing. And also, as you look at today's world like ai is becoming increasingly pervasive every sector every job you know, they're finding ways to use ai in their in their in their work and and also there's a lot of data that goes in and we want to build ai driven applications using all this data and and knowledge graphs are really useful when there's so much data and we want to make sense of it so maybe can you explain how you would build a knowledge graph, like what does it take? Obviously, Google built it; they're huge. But like to, to an average person, how do you build a knowledge graph? Yeah, so that, you know, people have data uh, assets in a variety of formats. Uh, so a lot of enterprise data actually lives in uh, SQL databases, SQL relational databases. Uh, historically, <coughs> uh, 
there hasn't been a database that's capable of holding all of an enterprise's data. And so you you would have, you know, large enterprises might have thousands of SQL databases that drive many thousands uh, more applications. And each uh, data set was sort of uh, trapped in a silo in a, in a relational database. Okay. So if you're building a knowledge graph from that, you typically will move all that data into a cloud native um, database, uh, a data cloud, if you buy into Snowflake's uh, terminology. And now all of a sudden you have all your data in one database, like a Snowflake or something similar. And you can uh, point every analyst and every person who, you know, every developer, every person who needs data to one place. Now, the challenge you have there is that you might still, you might have all the data in one database. And thankfully, we have scalable databases technologies technologies that let you do that. But you still might have thousands of different data models. And so one data silo might call, call something a nation. Another might call the same thing a country. Uh, in one data silo, you might have United States of America. In another uh, database, you might have USA uh, or United States or U.S.A. Uh, <laughs> right, right. And so, so a knowledge graph that uh, you build from structured sources sort of creates a conceptual model of the underlying data sets so that you have uniformity and you have the ability to navigate across all these data silos uh, in a uniform way. And in a typical enterprise, you don't have more than a few hundred unique concepts, okay? You're not dealing with that many concepts. You know, you have a customer, you have a product, you have uh, a notion of time, you have a notion of uh, location, like an office space or a warehouse or a factory. So um, there aren't that many concepts uh, in in, in particular for a particular enterprise or a particular domain, yet um, the data that we have is fragmented across thousands of different uh, data silos. You have a similar thing going on with semi-structured data, JSON data. That's also another very popular way of, of storing data. <clears throat> Again, there, uh, you know, p- different people use different conventions, different ways of uh, classifying things. And then, of course, you have data that lives in unstructured sources, um, you know, PDF documents typically or documents. But you can have it in images and videos and audios and so on. And so... For each of those sources, you would have what you would have different techniques that will allow you to extract the data and structure it and put it in a knowledge graph so that now you can navigate across uh, all of it. And then for the knowledge part, you know, a lot of our knowledge is encoded in, um, in programs. And so, um, you know, right now the state of the practice is that you would be, you know, you would sort of take uh, that knowledge and represent it uh, relationally or declaratively. Uh, and we're starting to see emerging technologies like LLMs that can potentially help in that translation. Okay, or the other very popular place that knowledge lives is in you know our heads. Uh, so we we have some expertise that uh, you know we want to capture and code. Uh, ideally, not as a program, as a as a you know, declarative statement. And then you have other uh, declarative sources like um, Excel spreadsheets, for example, or Google uh, Google spreadsheets, where you have a lot of knowledge about a domain embedded as uh, or, or expressed as formulas, you know, A17 equals B12 minus D6 or, or something like that, typically mapped to something in, in the domain. So, yeah, data and knowledge live in a lot of different places, and a knowledge graph helps bring them all together in, in one coherent, um, you know, way with one way of organizing it and, and managing it. Yeah. You brought up a, an interesting point, and you mentioned Snowflake and, and Data Cloud. So if you look at data infrastructure providers, in some shape or form, there are so many different 
companies doing useful things. And there's been a, an ongoing discussion on, and both are useful, about, hey, do we bring compute to data or do we bring data to compute? And again, both, there are use cases for both in different situations. But can you just compare and contrast these two paths? And when should we go with one versus the other? Yeah, so I think the more the more that we want to you know imbue our systems with intelligence, the more importance uh, the more important it becomes to have efficient access to data. Okay, so I've been doing AI and machine learning type things in the enterprise context for over thirty years now, and in that context, the better paradigm is to bring the compute to the data. Okay, so if I have a hundred terabytes of data sitting somewhere and I want to do something, you know, analytic uh, using it, uh, you know, as something as simple as sort of aggregating it, but also could be learning from it, you know, driving some deep learning or machine learning uh, algorithm. Uh, if I have to pull that out and send it over to some compute device, you know, in, you know, I don't know, one hundred gigabyte tranches or 10 gigabyte tranches or one terabyte tranches or whatever, there's a lot of going back and forth uh, there, and it uh, you know systems architected that way tend to have um, scalability challenges. But if you move the compute to the data, uh, it you know that changes that uh, dynamic. So um, classic architecture, you know, I have a bunch of Java code running in an app server, and I have a bunch of data in a SQL database. If you have to pull all the data out of the database and send it to Java, that's that's problematic. But if you can, you know, run the Java or run the SQL query inside a database in a way where uh, you don't have to worry about running out of uh, memory and so on, uh, it's it's much more effective. So I think whenever you're doing um, when you're doing analytics that require access to data, it's better to send the compute to the data. Right. And if you look at, let's say, there's as you said, hundred terabytes of data, a lot of data, and moving it is just not. No, it's, it's it's expensive and it's just going to take a, a long time. So you bring the app to the, the 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 data. Now, in as AI is getting more and more complex, you need like a lot of infrastructure. So we're getting to a point where the compute itself is like so heavy. The infra is heavy. So bringing like heavy infrastructure to data is also becoming cumbersome, mostly because yeah, if you want to run like a very very big model and you need like a whole bunch of GPU. So, how do you think about like at, at what point does it does it flip? Like, what's the light apps can come to data? What if both are super heavy? Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, you know when when I think of data going to compute, I think of it more in terms of edge applications and things you know that you were running on our devices and so on. There's a lot of compute capability in those things, and so uh, it would be great to be able to harness it. I think your question is more about like you have. You know, heavy GPU accelerator requirements. Uh, but what I'm seeing is that, um, you know, again, to use Snowflake as an example, they're they're really making it much easier to uh, deploy that kind of you know compute infrastructure directly into uh, their data cloud using things like Snowpark container services and so on. Okay. So, uh, you know, sometimes that's not possible. And so sometimes you just have to pay the price of managing the data transfer, but then, you know, you're going to pay that cost. Ideally, you would be, you, you know, you would, you would manage your data and systems that let you bring whatever compute you need to the data. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a really good point. And I think 
big companies like you know, Snowflake and even like Databricks, they're integrating compute offerings within their infrastructure precisely because it's like, as you said, it's useful to the customers. Moving back and forth is just a heavy lift. And I think it's a, yeah, I think it's a good point. All right. That brings me to the next topic, which is the concept of the AI coprocessor. Obviously, you've written about it, you've, uh, you've announced it. So to start off, what is the AI coprocessor and where is it used? Okay. Uh, so, yeah. So just let me start off by saying that the term coprocessor here is, is used by analogy. So, uh, you know, what we want, want people to think of when we say coprocessor is like something like a NVIDIA GPU sitting on the same motherboard as your Intel or AMD or ARM uh, CPU, offloading it for things, um, offloading the CPU for things the CPU wasn't really designed for. So things like um, gaming with lots of graphics or uh, machine learning or crypto mining. Now, the, un- the, 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 the GPU is the same thing. It's not like you have a GPU for gaming and a GPU for machine learning and a GPU for crypto mining or whatever your application is. It's just a, a subsystem that does uh, linear uh, algebra and similar operations really, really uh, well. Okay. So what's the equivalent for that, uh, of that, uh, for a database? So typical SQL relational databases are good at, can be very good at, uh, OLAP, uh, online analytical, uh, processing, being able to do lots of historical aggregations. They can be good at operational, uh, and OLTP type transactions, you know, keeping tr- track of, you know, taking $10 out of savings and moving into checking, uh, type applications. They can be good at handling uh, certain types of tabular and, in some cases, semi-structured data. Uh, But they're not designed to support the kinds of things that we need to do when we're building intelligence into applications. So things like um, predictive analytics in various flavors, you know, um, machine learning, simulation, uh, uh, in, in a variety of flavors, deep flavors and shallow flavors. Uh, doing things that would involve the use of optimizers and solvers, like linear programming, integer programming, other types of solver technology. I mean, you know, in in our world, our supply chains in the world run uh, because uh, every truck and every train and every boat and every airplane is scheduled using uh, solver technology like that. Um, You need to, uh, you often need to have support for rule-based reasoning, if you're doing things in accounting or the tax space or insurance, you need to be able to reason over data and uh, rule set to be able to make inferences because it would be too hard to implement um, that kind of logic in uh, procedural programming language. You need to be able to do graph analytics. Okay. So uh, if you didn't have an AI coprocessor, you would then have to uh, get a point solution that would sit outside of your you know, I'm going to use Snowflake here as an example that would sit outside of Snowflake that would need its own security and governance layer that is typically not cloud native. So it's not doesn't have the properties of a Snowflake that made Snowflake so successful against uh, cloud hosted or cloud uh, or on-premise solutions, you know, like Teradata and Hadoop and, and Atiza and systems like that, the systems it replaced, even Redshift in, in, in many ways, because Redshift was an on-premise uh, uh, solution before it became uh, cloud hosted. So you don't have cloud uh, uh, native architectures. You don't have uh, versioning, time travel, zero copy cloning, uh, effectively infinite storage, effectively infinite compute. You don't have consumption-based pricing. And then those those point solutions, uh, the third deficiency is that they're typically not relational. 
They can be navigational or procedural or tensor-based. And what that means is that you have to con- you know, convert across paradigms, the relational paradigm that you're using inside of Snowflake with uh, some other paradigm that you're using in these point solutions. So a coprocessor um, uh, is, is, uh, solves all those problems. It's embedded inside of Snowflake in our case um, and, and inside the security perimeter of Snowflake and leverages all the governance infrastructure that people have invested in. It's cloud native like Snowflake, so you can consume it uh, just like Snowflake and has all the architectural benefits of elasticity and and so on. And it's relational like Snowflake. So you're not having to change paradigms to do graph analytics, to do rule-based reasoning, to do prescriptive analytics, to do predictive analytics. Okay, so it's like on the motherboard, so to speak, (laughs) as opposed to having having a GPU or something like that be somewhere else and I need to go to a different gaming device or I need to go to a different learning device or a different crypto mining uh, device, it's all sort of running in the same uh, uh, you know, data management environment. Actually, that's an amazing choice of the term coprocessor because it makes a ton of sense, as you, as you explained. It's basically, there's so many advantages of being like on the motherboard and you can just leverage the native characteristics of, of wherever you are, in this case, Snowflake, but I think that's, uh, that's fantastic. Also, you mentioned graph analytics, and that's a good segue into my next question. Let's say I'm a developer and I'm looking at various graph analytics products. Uh, what are the characteristics of a good product? Like, what should I look for? Yeah, well, I've already listed some of them. I think they, those, those products should be cloud native, right? So a lot of the existing products in market today are long in the tooth. They're 14, 15 years old. They were created as, as open source systems in some cases that were intended to run on premise, and so even though they have cloud offerings, the the architecture is such that they can only be cloud hosted. Right, they're not taking advantage of the native capabilities of the cloud. They don't separate storage from compute. You don't have elasticity and all of those nice properties that I just listed. So, I think a cloud native architecture is, uh, you know, is a is uh, yeah, fundamental, right? Like if you're building on a graph system that isn't cloud native, it's sort of like you're building on Hadoop. So these sort of uh, systems are lacking that way. Another difference, um, and I'll expand on it a little bit, is a sort of navigational versus relational approach. So there are some you know, well-established popular uh, graph databases out there that are fundamentally navigational. So that means you have pointers that take you from a person to another person or from a, a location to another location or whatever, you know, whatever you have uh, modeled in the graph. Uh, and so the mindset is fundamentally procedural. OK. And so whereas there might be um, query languages that come with those systems, OK, they, those query languages typically don't have a query optimizer. Um, and if you. Uh, find yourself expressing something, uh, a query in those languages, and that query doesn't perform very well, your only option typically is to fall back into procedural programming. So some of these products have like Java as a stored procedural language. And to do anything real, you end up having to program everything in Java, which, you know, um, which is fine, but it doesn't give you sort of the nice properties of a database and, and, and so on. Uh, so, so some of these query languages, um, they, 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 they query a graph, but uh, funnily enough, they produce the result as a, as a table, 
as data in a table. So you can't take the output of one query and feed it as input to the next query because your data is a graph, you produce a table, and you can't feed that into another thing. So you can't compose queries. So you end up having to write really, really long, really big queries that do everything that you want in one shot because you can't produce a temporary result or uh, have a subquery that you know feeds into the next uh, layer. So... Um, there are limits in terms of scalability. There are limits in terms of performance. There are limitations in terms of uh, how you fit them in the rest of your computing infrastructure. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, similar to the shift that we saw away from Hadoop to relational systems, uh, I think, uh, you know, um, I hope we will lead the, the, the transition away from navigational graph systems that are not cloud native uh, to scalable, reliable, um, uh, usable, cons- you know, uh, composable relational uh, graph systems. Yeah, I think you made a fantastic point about composability, and I feel like that is such an important part, especially in, in a modern system where you, know, you, you cannot afford to. It should exist. It has. It's like table stakes, and it just makes your life difficult if you don't have it. So that's a fantastic point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the word. I was the term I was looking for is table stakes. If you're not cloud native, that's it's table stakes now. You can't yeah. afford to uh, <laughs> uh, not 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 be modern that way. Yeah, and also when I talk to like younger like newer engineers on prem, is like what what is what is like they they they're so to them it's like. <laughs> Well, isn't it like, isn't cloud like the only way to go? Like, what is this on-prem thing? I've never seen it, never heard about it. But yeah, there was a time and everything was like like on-prem. It's it's funny. Um, All right. So let's talk about machine learning workflows and how they interact with knowledge graphs. So if you look at uh, a machine learning application, there's a lot of machine learning work like training and inference, fine-tuning. There's so much like data organization work. So if you look at a a stack, like a typical tech stack, where does machine learning work sit relative to like a knowledge graph system? How do they talk to each other and what's the level of interaction? Yeah, let's start with the most basic example, things that are, you know, our clients are doing today. uh, And then we'll build up to say more interesting, maybe more uh, futuristic examples. But so, you know, in, in the enterprise in particular, um, a lot of machine learning today is still shallow learning, okay? Uh, so uh, data scientists typically have to go get access to data, and they do feature engineering in a variety of forms, and they feed those features into a model like a, you know, a, a boosted tree or a regression or a logistic regression or, or something like that, okay? And a lot of the effort... Uh, of encoding knowledge into these models happens by data scientists writing uh, programs that do f- that create these features and do feature engineering. Okay, it is often the case, and we've seen this over and over again with our customers, that the more sophisticated the knowledge you encode, the background knowledge you encode in these features, the better the predictive accuracy of these models. Okay, so we have a uh, a large telecommunications client that has a nice quote about us on our website. Uh, that has been able to do to gain substantial, uh, you know, improvements in um, uh, detecting fraud. Okay, by looking at its data and analyzing it for uh, analyzing sort of the underlying graph structure in that data. So, if you don't have a graph analytics capability, you can't create features that look at, for example, who calls who, in what patterns, what are the clicks, what are the triangles. 
uh, uh, what are sort of the connectedness of the data? What is it? And you can encode that in a form of feature that might be uh, predictive of fraud, okay, or of, you know, um, robocalling. Okay, like a robocaller will call a lot of people, but will not get calls from a lot of people, right? So, so those types of uh, graph analytics um, or our, the, the graph analytics we provide enables uh, uh, folks to build features that have that kind of background knowledge at scale. You know, telco data is very large data sets. And, uh, and then that makes it uh, easier to build um, much more accurate models that predict fraud and other bad behavior uh, more accurately. Okay, so that's sort of baseline uh, uh, capability. The other sort of baseline capability is uh, data scientists have to deal with data across silos. And as we mentioned at the beginning, um, you know, if you have a knowledge graph that lets you navigate across through those silos, right? So you're now uh, combining data sets from uh, different, uh, you know, data silos and different data models more, much more easily. So that makes feature engineering more productive and easier to do and, and so on. <clears throat> now, over time, though, uh, so, so the, the, the future that I would like to see is, uh, is something like deep learning for structured data. Okay. So, you know, one of the, when, when, and also around 2012, when deep learning became a thing, the, the, the breakthrough was that on images and on text and on um, audio signals and videos and so on, you no longer needed to do feature engineering because you can give a deep learning model the image and you might label it. You might say cat or dog or person. And that's all you had to do uh, to build a model. Uh, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm simplifying. You have to pick the architecture of the, you know, of the, of the deep learning and, and you have to pick some learning strategies, but you didn't have to do feature engineering. Before that, a data scientist would have had to do like edge detection or texture detection or pre-process the image in a variety of ways to kind of decompose it into pieces that you can feed into a shallow model that would tell you uh, dog or, or cat or, or whatever and generally not do a very good job of it. So deep learning made it possible to eliminate feature engineering for um, those types of data sources, but we don't have the equivalent of that for structure sources, okay? And I see a lot of really cool work happening in leading universities and some uh, some cool startups where people are now starting to tackle the problem of give me structured data, structured in the form of a graph, okay, which is relational data you can think of as, uh, you know, uh, a good way of representing uh, those relationships that are, uh, you know, in a graph. And then you tell me what uh, what you what data is missing, okay? And I will predict it for you. So if you want to, to know what uh, next week's sales of iPhones are going to be, you are now looking at the sales table for records that don't yet exist and trying to infer them using uh, graph neural networks and other similar techniques. So I think it would be very, I think knowledge graphs will be fundamental uh, to getting deep learning style machine learning in an enterprise context without, you know, having to do all the laborious work of doing feature engineering. Okay. The other quick thing, I know I'm, I'm, I'm taking my time with this answer, but there's so much you can do here. The other thing that we're seeing is that, you know, language models have become very popular and um, people are trying to deploy them in a variety of very interesting ways across the enterprise. But language models are, are also, well, not but, but language models are also unique is that you don't train them for a specific problem. You just train them on the world's knowledge and they, you know, they develop a, 
uh, sort of this predictive capability around um, understanding language and, and so on. Uh, but what uh, what's interesting about that is you, you they they exhibit some of the same characteristics and, and weaknesses that we as people have. In the sense that, you know, if you point a language model to a database that has 200 million columns on it, in it, it's not going to be, it's not going to be able to navigate it as well as if you point it to a knowledge graph that has a few hundred concepts and a few thousand relationships in it. Okay, so knowledge graphs as an interface between a language model and the the data silos, okay, uh, seems to be, uh, uh, you know, gaining a lot of traction. And so we are seeing analysts like Gartner and other people write about the importance of knowledge graphs as a building block in your data infrastructure to get value out of uh, language models. Amazing. I think that that relative positioning of those those parts, I think it's fantastic. And uh, you make a really good point about the data silo on one side, like many data sources, like there's no... You know, I mean, we want it to be uniform and nice and structured, but in reality, it rarely is. I think on one hand, we have that. On the other hand, we have smooth like LLMs. And I feel like I think this, this layer could really add a lot of value. All right, I have one final question before we go to the rapid fire round. Your customers must be building all sorts of you know, useful, cool applications on top of relational AI. What features are they requesting next? And also... That's just input. What are you actually going to build next in the next six to 12 months? Yeah. So when we announced, um, you know, um, uh, our support for, you know, Snowflake, where we announced ourselves as basically the AI coprocessor for Snowflake, we emphasized three workloads. We emphasized graph analytics, rule-based reasoning, and prescriptive analytics. So one of the things that we want to make sure we get to market as quickly as possible is support for predictive analytics in the flavor that I, I, I talked about. So being able to support, uh, you know, built-in accelerated shallow learning, being able to support graph neural networks so people can, uh, you know, query the database for, uh, you know, information it doesn't have, um, uh, and uh, being able to uh, also support other uh, statistical modeling paradigms like simulation and probabilistic programming and, and things like that. So that's something that we, uh, we're we working on. We're working on um, trying to get there as quickly as possible, uh, but that's something that we want to do. Other than that, I think it's just the usual stuff that people ask of a, of a a database system, data management system, you know, more scale, right? We've gotten the scale to be to the range of hundreds of terabytes, but people want petabytes and tens of petabytes and so on. Uh, more performance, uh, more uh, usability and uh, more expressivity in the query language and so on. So um, there's just a ton uh, of sort of basic engineering, polish type engineering that we have to do to uh, to continue to sort of make it easier and easier for people to engage with our technology. And so, um, sort of, you know, in diversifying the workloads further and then making our system more accessible to more people, I think would be the, the main thing. Amazing. I think it's, it's wonderful that, you know, once the customers find a lot of value, that's the initial part. And after that, I think they, they get to a point where, okay, we love this. Now we want to do a lot more with it. So I think it's the, in some ways it's, it's a good place to be, but also it's, it's very difficult engineering wise. So I think um, we'll, we'll see how it plays out, but uh, that's fantastic. All right. With that, we're at the rapid-fire round. Uh, I'll ask a series of questions and would love to hear your answers. You ready? 
Yeah, ready. Let's see what I can do. <laughs> Question number one. What's your favorite book? Oh, geez, like the, look, look behind me. I have a lot of books. I love <laughs> books. Um, I, uh, I don't get to read as many as much as I used to, uh, at least sort of the books. But uh, if I just look at what's on my desk today. So this is currently a book I'm enjoying and or I have enjoyed. It's written by um, one of our board members and investors, Bob Muglia who used to be the CEO of Snowflake and before that was at Microsoft for many, year, for, for many years. And, uh, you know, I, I uh, uh, humble brag here, or maybe not so humble brag, uh, but there's a whole chapter on relational AI and on knowledge graphs and why Bob is so excited about them. So this has been my favorite book to, to give to people and to say, oh, look, you know, read, you know, read about, uh, you know, why, uh, you know, we're... Uh, you know, our work is so cool and so interesting and so important. So, yeah, I love this book. For listeners, the book he just showed is called The Datapreneurs by Bob Moglia. What has been the strangest AI trend over the last 12 months? I mean, it's not strange, but, you know, there's been like the sort of super hype. We keep doing this to ourselves in uh, in AI, like stuff, like we get a very good breakthrough and then everybody goes to... Uh, you know, AGI is around the corner and humans are irrelevant. <laughs> and I don't know how many times I've seen that movie going back to the late 80s when, you know, people discovered that you can add a hidden layer to a neural network. You know, this is when you only had one hidden layer and, and then that was the big breakthrough and humans are toast. Uh, and then, you know, uh, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's the kind of technology that is very easily hyped. Uh, and so, yeah, not... Um, you know, I'm surprised that we keep we keep doing that to ourselves. So obviously, language models, amazing breakthrough, uh, and in some ways uh, not hyped enough, but in many ways, um, you know, a very important piece of the overall puzzle, and they enable new things. But uh, I don't think we're in any danger uh, as a species um, right now. So um, that, that's a good point. What vertical is the most underserved by AI today? Interesting uh, question. Um, so, look, I think there, you know, there will be like verticals that have been very uh, hard to scale and very hard to make profitable, like verticals that depend on people, like service-oriented verticals, customer service-oriented uh, verticals, where you need a lot of people uh, uh, to allow, you know, to, to, to allow a company to grow, and, and and because as you add people, you can't be as profitable as companies that leverage technology, leverage computers. So I think those those types of verticals, those types of industries are are now, um, you know, trans, you can transform them into more technology driven verticals because of these this language model breakthrough, right? And so you can have, um, you know, companies that are very uh, very customer service, very labor intensive that will be now be able to automate a lot of that away with language models. So I would look for like service industries in general, um, labor intensive industries in general, I think can be uh, can be transformed. What's the one thing that separates good AI products from the great ones? Um, simplicity, usability, um, there was an article written by Martin Casado and Andreessen Horowitz uh, a few years ago about how they looked at sort of their portfolio of AI companies 
and they notice that they don't grow very fast and aren't very you know scalable because you know you need AI and machine learning have been high touch things. You need to do a lot of data massaging, a lot of feature engineering, and building models is not trivial. And so if you have to build a lot of models, that's a lot of labor. And so those AI technology companies ended up looking like consulting companies because so much of what was done was one off. so uh so yeah i uh i think the usability accessibility uh you know it just works is is a is a big deal here and it's true i think for most product categories most most uh, classes but it's even you know it's very hard to come by in the ai world sometimes so as a founder what have you changed your mind on recently Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you're always getting new, new data, new information, et cetera. So, you know, historically, I, I would say that, uh, you know, we, we kind of always looked up to the big tech firms uh, in terms of like they're well run, they execute well, they got their act together, uh, et cetera. There was sort of this admiration of, of how the, you know, the Googles and the Amazons and the Metas and, the, you know, Apples and, and and so on of the world uh, operate, and to be honest, they've been kind of underwhelming in the last uh, in the last year. And some of the the, the overhiring, and then the reacting to that, and then you sort of talk to people who work there, and so the relative bureaucracy and inefficiency and stuff like that. So yeah, I've sort of um, yeah, I'm less impressed than I was. Uh, <laughs> right. All right. Next question. What's your favorite question to ask when you conduct job interviews? Uh, it's, it's, you know, I, I, when you do a startup and you do something like what we do, it's sort of very much a, a missionary mindset, okay? So, you, you, uh, you, you, you know, as a smaller company, you don't have the, a lot of the advantages and the resources of a, of a bigger company. And so, you have to be really into it, okay? Uh, I think most people I work with would not, you know, would not trade this type of work for other more mundane uh, work. And so really a lot of my questions in the interview process is trying to figure out what people are excited about, what, what gets them out of bed enthusiastically. Um, you know, it's harder to work with people when they're unconvinced or they're doing it in a more mer- mercenary way. Uh, uh, so trying to get to sort of what is, what is this person really excited by? And is that something we can, you know, that exists in our company and, and, you know, because if you have the enough missionaries, you can really do stuff. Uh, mercenaries, you know, you can get their attention for a little bit, and then they go, you know, they go to the next paycheck. So. Yeah. All right. Final question: What's your number one advice to early stage founders in 2023? Yeah, I mean, look, I've, I've been doing startups for some time, and I've been fortunate enough to have been at startups that, you know, um, two of them that went public, and a couple of them that have uh, had nice exits. And really, you know, when the early days of doing a startup, you kind of be, get distracted with like the company name and the website <laughs> and the business card and uh, things that are not directly about creating a product <laughs> that people want. Right. Okay. They're sort of like ego things. Okay. Office space, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's fun and it's nice, but that's like, that's not the point. The point is, you know, creating something, bringing something into the world that people that solves, you know, important problems for people and that they're willing to pay you for it and spending, you know, as much of your energy as possible, like solving for that. Right. Not the, not the, the theater around startups, you know, not the, not the 
superficial things, you know. So. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a fantastic point to end the episode. Uh, Wilhelm, this has been a fantastic discussion. Just loved your insights. And I think the, the richness of knowledge, because I've been doing this for a long time, I think it just shows and uh, it's just wonderful to cover all these topics. So thank you again for coming onto the show and uh, sharing your knowledge. Thanks for your questions. Thanks. Thanks for your time. What a fantastic discussion on knowledge graphs and AI co-processors. Thanks to Moham for coming onto the show. You can visit infinitemachinelearning.com to subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you soon with another amazing episode.